I'm going to pray. I'm going to give thanks for what God is doing in our church. I'm going to ask that he'd prepare our hearts for the word. So please join me as we pray. Father God, we rejoice. Rejoice in your provision. We thank you that you have provided for our needs and even more so you have provided abundantly. And I thank you, Father, that that is answered prayer for us who began to pray two years ago that you would do something here. I thank you for the generosity of our external supporters who contribute to make this happen. I thank you for the generosity of your people here who call Anchor Home. And I ask that you would continue to motivate us by the gospel to be sacrificial and generous in our giving. And now, Father, as we come before you in your word, we pray that you would still our hearts, speak to us by your spirit, transform us, make us more like Jesus. We pray this in his powerful and strong name. Amen. Let's go to Acts chapter 4, starting at verse 23. Acts 4, 23. And uh, the people on view here are Peter and John, who have just been released from prison. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of your father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand and heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of, our, of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were, filled with, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and continued to speak the word of the Lord with boldness. I remember the first time I met Brad Koneman, who's uh, one of our senior leaders. I got a phone call from Catherine's older brother, Jono, or younger brother. I don't even know what the age gap is there. Uh, Catherine's brother, Jono, gave me a ring and said, hey, look, my brother-in-law, Brad, is going to give you a call. He works at this organization called Voice of the Martyrs. They've got this youth initiative thing going on. He wants to catch up with you. And I was like, yeah, all right. Another person who wants to partner with our youth group on some other social justice issue and save the world. And kind of, I was, a, I was a little bitter and twisted about these guys that came in and pitched these massive visions to me as a youth pastor. And so now I remember meeting up with Brad, I think it was at Starbucks at Mount Druitt. And, uh, and Brad blew me away. He sat me down. He said, listen, I want you to know you need the persecuted church more than it needs you. I was like, what? He's like, you need the persecuted church more than it needs you. And I was at the first words that came out of his mouth, he got me. I was intrigued. And I sit, sat and listened to Brad as he explained how the youth of Australia need the example and witness and faith of the persecuted church, who despite severe opposition, despite even for some the threat of their own lives, they continue to boldly preach the gospel. And as he shared stories of people that they'd been in touch with in Vietnam and Myanmar and Colombia and all across the world with the uh, voice of the martyrs, I began to see exactly what our youth group needed. They needed the stories of the persecuted church. And this morning, we're going to be looking at 
the original, the very first story of persecution against the church, the very first one that's recorded in Acts at least. And what we see here this morning is a prayer that comes from the church in the trenches of mission. But before we get to the actual prayer itself, there's a lot of context that, that uh, leads up to this story. And so I want us to catch up on what's already happened. And it begins all the way back in Acts chapter 3, verse 1. As Peter and John come to the temple, they see a man who has been born blind. He's 40 years old plus, and he asks Peter and John for money. And Peter says, I don't have any money, but what I give you is healing. And he says, in the name of Jesus, walk. Is he, is he crippled? Blind? I should have checked that. I think he's crippled. And he gets up and walks. Uh, and this causes a massive stir in the city. And all of a sudden, people are freaking out over Peter and John, and they rush towards him. And he has this wonderful opportunity to preach the gospel publicly. And so he stands up and he begins to declare that it is Jesus who has healed this man, and it is Jesus who died on the cross and rose again. And as he does that, at the beginning of chapter 4, the priests and the Sadducees arrive, and they're very angry with Peter for preaching about Jesus. And so they call the guards, they have Peter and John arrested and thrown into jail overnight. In Acts chapter 4 verse 5, the next day they spent a night in jail. The Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish ruling council, the very same men that sentenced Jesus to death, call Peter and John, summon them to their court, and they begin to question them over why and what and what happened with that guy. And Peter, that says in 4 verse 8, full of the Holy Spirit, stood up and preached the gospel. He said, it's Jesus who healed this man, and there is no other name given to man under heaven by which we can be saved other than the name of Jesus. And the Sanhedrin is like, whoa, these are uneducated fishermen, and they're taken aback by their boldness. And so they send them out, they deliberate, they call them back in, and they say, you must stop preaching in the name of Jesus. And I love what Peter says in response. Some of my favorite words in all of Acts Peter says this to the very man who killed Jesus. You judge for yourselves whether it is right for us to obey you or God. For we cannot help but speak of what we've seen and heard. We cannot help it. The Sanhedrin offer more threats to stop preaching about Jesus. They set them free. Peter and John go home to the church community and we pick up the story. Verse 23. When they were released... They went to their friends, that is the church, and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. So who, who do Peter and John go to? It says they go to their friends. Literally, it's their own, their community of faith. They rush back to their gospel community and they report to them what had happened. The church here acts like the team huddle for mission. And our gospel communities ought to be that place as well. A place of prayer where we're sent to our city on mission. We come back, we report as what happened, we pray together and we go again. And that's what they do. They go to their friends they go to their, their community of faith and their immediate response is to pray. Verse 23 says, they lifted their voices together as one. Now, I don't know if that's the adult version of youth group chaos prayer. I don't know if you're familiar with youth group chaos prayer. I think Isaac Viglione's Bible study used to do it. It's when they all just pray at the same time and it's chaos. Everyone's praying out loud and 
Uh, is that what's happening here? I, I don't think so. Maybe, but I don't think so. I think what's happened in this circumstance is probably one person prays and the others are in wholehearted agreement with it, maybe even verbal agreement, or they, they kind of have a person who prays and then they break up in small groups and pray or individuals pray at the same time. Whatever it is, the whole community, the whole church that is gathered here begins to pray of one accord, with one heart. And their prayer doesn't begin, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. It's different. Sovereign Lord is how they begin this prayer. And, and the, the language there is deliberate. It's deliberate because there's a very strong contrast in this passage between the authority of the Jewish rulers and the authority of God. And so as this church begins to pray, they call on the God whom they believe is both sovereign and Lord. Sovereign meaning He is in complete control. Lord meaning He is the only ultimate authority and God. As opposition comes, as persecution arises, as imprisonment happens and the church begins to face opposition, they begin to remember, this is our God. He is the only God. He is the one who is in control. And he's in control because he's made everything. Did you notice that in verse 23? He's made the heavens and the earth and the sea, every sphere of life God has made. And everything that inhabits all of those three spheres, God has made. Every single corner of the earth is his. He has supreme control, supreme rule, supreme authority to rule over every corner of the universe, including the hearts of the men who have imprisoned and threatened Peter and John. That's the God they pray to. I wonder where we turn when opposition arises. Do we just turn in on ourselves and depend on our own self-sufficiency, our own strength? Do we turn away and run from what God has called us to in the Great Commission? Or do we turn to God and plead that He would empower us to do what He's called us to do by His Spirit? You know, it's interesting, isn't it, to look at how people begin to pray. Because the words they use and, and the, the, the way that they describe God says a lot about what they believe, both about God and about prayer. And so this church starts, Sovereign Lord. If God has no authority, no power, no control, who would pray? No one would ever pray if God was impotent. But friends, we don't pray to an impotent God, but a sovereign Lord, a God who is in control of everything and has all authority and power. I love how they begin to lay a foundation of theological truth before they start praying. They begin to grab on all of these theological elements and truths about how God is in control, lay them down before they begin to request anything of God. I think that's a, a brilliant habit to be in as we begin to pray. Instead of just launching into your shopping list, maybe spend some time reflecting on God's character. If you're praying for healing, to stop and re remember that God is the one who has the power to heal because He created the body and every single muscle and fiber and neuron lays down at His command. Or if we're praying for salvation for someone, it's important to stop and remember God's heart for the lost. Remember what God did to cross the universe to put our needs above his own. And, or if we're praying for circumstances that are out of control in our life, to remember that God is the one who is in control of everything. 
Nothing surprises God. Now, that's not some formula that guarantees that God's going to answer your prayer. It's not reminding God of something he's forgotten about. Just God, just reminding you that you're in control of everything before I ask you for this thing that's out of control. That's not it, right? It's a reminder to our own hearts of truth that we desperately need to hear. And that truth stirs faith in us for the things that we're about to ask. And it grounds our requests on God's truth. And so that's what this church does. Verse 23, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of your father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers, of, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed one. This prayer begins by quoting Psalm 2. And Psalm 2 is a psalm that is written about opposition towards God's people, God's anointed king, and God himself. And so as this psalmist looks around at the time that he penned Psalm 2, all he sees are the nations and the rulers of the earth setting themselves up in opposition to God. And so the church takes this old prayer and they see David speaking prophetically of their time when God's anointed son Jesus would be opposed. And so they use those words and appropriate them for themselves. This is what it says. This is how they read it. Verse 27. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Here is the truth that this church begins to cling to despite the fact that there's opposition, despite the fact that they're threatened, within a space of days of being commissioned by Jesus to go and preach the gospel to all nations, they rest on the truth that God is in control, that He is the sovereign Lord. They rest on the truth that their plans are actually in vain because no one can frustrate the plans and purposes of God. You know, it's increasingly less and less popular to be a Christian in Sydney in 2015. um, There's there's more opposition to the church than than ever before. It seems that Christians are the only minority group. It's okay to publicly mock. I mean, you would never treat Christians the way other minority groups, the way Christians are treated. Like, the media would never treat the, the Muslim community like they treat the Christian community. Any, any other minority group, political, sexual, religious, but Christians are the one that it's okay to make fun of publicly. Do you know it's harder, or easier rather, it's easier to open a brothel in Sydney than it is to open a church. Increasingly, we're facing opposition to the message we have and the, and the community of faith we're trying to build. And so I think sometimes we can think, well, God, it's hard for us. It's hard for us here in Sydney when our culture is so secular and our worldviews are so far apart. But we've got to remember that the early church exploded in a world that was actually not all that different from us. The culture of the first century was theologically, socially, and ideologically opposed to the gospel message. Far more opposed, in fact, than our own culture and society is. And yet, God poured out his spirit and he blessed his church and he grew his kingdom. 
And so where do we turn? When opposition comes, when it gets hard, when people persecute us, do we run to God and plead that he would help us to continue to do what he's called us to? Or do we turn in on ourselves or away from that calling? Well, this church runs to God. And after they've laid down this theological foundation of truth that they cling to, that grows faith in them, they begin to request things of God. This is what they request, verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. You'll notice there's no request there to stop the persecution. There's no request there to smite their enemies and pour down fire from heaven and destroy None of that. Why? Because the church remembers what Jesus said. In John 15, verse 20, Jesus says this to his disciples. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Instead of asking God to to stop the persecution, they just entrust themselves to the God that they believe is in control, even of the people who are persecuting them. And instead, they ask God for an outpouring of His Spirit that results in two things. The first is extraordinary boldness to continue to preach the gospel. And the second is that God would work miracles that would point to the message that they preach. That... God would do his thing. The church would do their thing. That's, that's what their request is. God, you do the work of the miraculous. We can't do that, but help us to be faithful to what you have called us to, the Great Commission. What would you do if New South Wales state government slapped a ban on proselytizing, as they like to call it? You couldn't share Jesus with anyone. What would you do? Would you go back to your gospel community Get on your knees, plead with God that he would make you bold and then walk out the door and preach Jesus fearlessly. Would would you do that? Because that's exactly what this church has done. And the reality is that the majority of the Christian world outside of Western countries lives like this. This is what it means to be a Christian. For, For way more of the population of Christianity than in the Western world. It's interesting, isn't it, that the church that experiences the most freedom to preach the gospel is often the church that has the least boldness and courage. And the church that has everything to lose is increasingly stepping out in faith and boldly declaring the gospel. As I mentioned before, Brad used to work for an organization called Voice of the Martyrs. And I remember he brought to our church, our staff team and our youth ministry Uh, a pastor that they brought out from a a Muslim country. His name was Pastor Victor. And Pastor Victor shared some of his story with us. And it was an incredible story of how Jesus had called himself, revealed himself to Pastor Victor in a vision and a dream as he went to the mosque to pray. And he didn't really know what it was about until I think it was four or five years later that he finally got a, a Bible and he read it and he realized that all of this time he'd been praying to Jesus. And Jesus called him and commissioned him to to be a a light in his city and they planted a church and they started preaching the gospel and the authorities found out, they trashed their church, they, they stole all of their equipment and they locked up one of their pastors in jail. 
and they forced him to deny Jesus, and he didn't. And as Pastor Victor was sharing his story, we, I mean, we were just blown away. And at the end of it, uh, we asked him, how can we pray for you? And he said, you know, what? We, we would love to pray for protection, that God would protect us from the authorities who are trying to undermine what's happening here. But more than that, w- would you pray for courage not to deny Jesus when they force us to? I was like, I've never been in that position where I'd be forced to pray a prayer like that. We're never driven to that point of desperation to cry out to God like the church did. What do you do when you've got two commands? One from God that says, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then you have another command from the authorities that says, Stop preaching in the name of Jesus. What do you do? You've got a choice. You can either be silent or you can speak. Now, what fills that gap between silence and speech? It's the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit-empowered boldness. Verse 29, Lord, look on their threats and grant that your servants would continue to speak the word with boldness. Now, this is what happens when a church prays a prayer like that. Verse 31, this is what happens. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. I got to tell you, I would love to see answered prayer that quickly. Bang, just like that. That would be great. Sometimes God wants us to pray a little longer and we'll look at persistence in prayer in a couple of weeks. But let me say this. God confirms that he answers this prayer with this physical sign of shaking the building or the place where they were. Now, as far as I'm aware, that's the only time that God does that in the Scriptures, in answer to prayer. Most of the time in the Scriptures, when God shakes something, it's a sign of judgment. But here, in Acts chapter 4, it's a confirmation that God has heard the prayers of his people and has poured out his Spirit and has answered. Now, I don't think we ought to expect And when we gather together for our prayer meetings or pray at York Street on Wednesday mornings, that God's going to shake the building. I don't think that's a normative experience for the church. Now, I'm not saying that God couldn't do that if he chose to do it again. He can. But I just don't think we should expect that to happen every time that we pray. But what I do think we ought to expect is that when the church gathers and asks that God would empower his people to do what he's told them to do, I believe God loves to answer that prayer and say yes. Fill people with the Spirit with boldness. Now the question here is, as this word goes out, what is the word that is spoken with great boldness? You've got to go back to earlier in chapter 4 to see the word that Peter proclaims to the Jewish rulers. He stands before them and he says, It is in the name of Jesus that this man is healed. And there is no other name given to men under heaven by which you can be saved other than the name of Jesus. That's the word of God that is proclaimed with boldness. They boldly preach the gospel of Jesus. But where does this boldness come from? Where does it come from? As Peter stands there and, and proclaims the gospel in front of those men, where does that come from? Because in In chapter 4, verse 13, even the Jewish rulers themselves are taken back by Peter's boldness. This is what it says. 
Now when they, that is the Jewish rulers, the Sanhedrins, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. Where, whoa, where does this boldness come from in this uneducated fisherman? Chapter 4 verse 8 tells us, the source of Peter's boldness is the filling of the Spirit. This is the man who just 40 plus days earlier denied Jesus three times to a servant girl. And here he is standing in front of the men that have the authority and power to crucify him just like they did Jesus. And he boldly preaches the name of Jesus in front of them. And this boldness comes from the Spirit of God. Now boldness is not to be mistaken for macho bravery. It's not to be mistaken for um, thoughtless and insensitive preaching at people. It's not what boldness is. It actually takes very little boldness to do something like that. Essentially, that's called being a jerk. That doesn't take much boldness. Boldness also doesn't mean that you will never fear anything. Boldness doesn't mean that you will fear the opinions, that you'll never fear the opinions of people. What I think boldness means here is often it's a spirit-empowered realization that there is something that is way more important than the fear and anxiety I'm feeling right now, namely the honor of Jesus, that there is an eternal need that this person needs met, and I have the message of hope to bring it to them. You know, if we're honest with ourselves, what we need is not more training in how to share the gospel. What we need is not more opportunities for the gospel. What we need is not more conviction that people need to hear the gospel. What we need is more gospel courage. What we need is spirit-empowered boldness to preach Christ. The reality is I know what to say. I know what people need to hear. I know I have opportunities all the time. I just chicken out so often. We need to hear this. We need what the Spirit has on offer. Power for boldness to boldly declare Jesus. Gospel courage. But you might be reading this and thinking, well, hang on a sec. What is this secondary filling of the Spirit that you're talking about here? I mean, I thought once you became a Christian, you got the Spirit and that was it. Is it like, do we need top-ups or something? And it's a great question. But if you read through the book of Acts, you will see a number of times that people or the church are said to have been filled with the Spirit subsequent even to the experience of Acts chapter 2 where the Holy Spirit comes on them for the first time. And so here in Acts chapter 4, you get Peter who's already been filled with the Spirit in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost and spoken in tongues, being filled with the Spirit. And then the church as they pray being filled with the Spirit. Part of the selection criteria for deacons in the church in Acts chapter 6 is that they ought to be people who are full of the Spirit. And I don't think that means that they should be Christians. It's a, it's a character assessment. Is this person walking in step with the Spirit? Is this person living on mission, empowered by the Spirit? Can we see the Spirit at work in their life? Stephen, who is one of those men, is also described a number of times as a man who is full of the Spirit or being filled with the Spirit in the case of opposition. In chapter 6 and 7, we read of the first martyr who is killed for his faith. And Stephen faces that full of the Holy Spirit. Paul, in chapter 13, verse 9, when he faces opposition from the magicians, he stares them down and it says he looks at them in the power of the Spirit. Or the church in chapter 
13 verse 52 are facing persecution. And it says the church is full of joy and the Holy Spirit. There's also a number of occasions where church or people are described to be full of the power of the Holy Spirit or full of the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And so it seems to me that this is the empowering presence of the Spirit being poured out on people. Distinct and additional to the original reception of the Spirit that comes when someone becomes a Christian. You cannot be a Christian without the Spirit of God. But God continues to pour His Spirit out on His people, in particular in the face of opposition to empower us for mission. Now you'll notice there that I didn't say a second blessing of the Spirit or a second baptism of the Spirit evidenced by tongues, because we just don't see that happening in these accounts in Acts. There is no baptism language associated with the word filling in any of those references I gave you. There is never a case where tongues are spoken as a result of those fillings of the Spirit. This is not a second baptism of the Spirit that is subsequent to your receiving the Spirit of God. This is a secondary filling and empowering of the Spirit for the purpose of mission particularly in the face of opposition. So that's what I think happens throughout Acts. And to be honest, it's what I think our church desperately needs. So that's the first source of this boldness. It comes from the Spirit of God. The second source, and this is not explicitly stated in this passage, but I throw it in there because it's so much a part of our DNA at Anchor. And that is a second source of gospel courage is gospel identity. Gospel identity. Tim Keller in his book, The Reason for God, says this. The gospel leads to deep humility and deep confidence at the same time. It undermines both swaggering and sniveling. I cannot feel superior to anyone, and yet I have nothing to prove to anyone. If I know that my identity is in Christ, that I am a child of God, that I've been redeemed and rescued that what God thinks of me matters more than what any other person thinks of me. If I know that, if my gospel identity is firm in the cross, that Jesus has dealt with my sin that separated me from God and has brought me back in a relationship with Him and there's nothing that I can do to separate myself from the love of God, if I know my gospel identity, that produces confidence in me. Humility, because grace is equal, grace is you do not earn grace, it's a gift. The, foot at the, cross of the ground at the foot of the cross is flat. We all come to Jesus with the same amount of need. It produces humility. But it also produces confidence. Because I know that God has forgiven me. I know that I'm a child of God. It also means that I can share the gospel freely. And not worry about facing opposition and rejection that people would think less of me because what matters the most is that God approves of me. You know, maybe our evangelistic cowardice says way more about our understanding of the gospel than it does anything else. When we so fear the opinions of others, maybe it's because we've forgotten. The Father approves of you. The Father loves you. The Father has called you to be His. He's reconciled you to Himself. And that's what's most important. And so where does this boldness come from? Two sources. In this passage, it comes from the empowering presence of the Spirit. And explicitly, implicitly, it comes from our gospel identity. Gospel courage 
comes from the Holy Spirit and gospel identity. You know, in a culture of increasing hostility towards the gospel, we need the Holy Spirit to empower us for mission. We need to be a church in the trenches of mission who are pleading with God that he would empower us to do what he's called us to do. Pleading with us, with him, that he would fill us with boldness. That he would do the greatest work of miracles in the lives of people, bringing them from death to life. In the trenches, we need to be pleading with God. And, you know, I, I think that kind of prayer is actually dangerous. It's dangerous to pray a prayer like, God, make us bold. You know why it's dangerous? Because you are the answer to that prayer. That's why it's dangerous. We are the mouthpiece of God. This week I came across a quote from A.W. Tozer um, as I was reflecting on prayer. And it was uh, personally convicting for me who has been praying for revival now since pretty much I got saved. Been gathering people at whatever church I've been a part of to ask that God would bring revival. And and I read this quote from A.W. Tozer. He says this, Have you noticed how much praying for revival has been going on of late? And how little revival has resulted? I believe the problem is that we have been trying to substitute praying for obeying and it simply will not work. What he's saying there is if you are willing to pray for revival, you have to be willing to be the answer to that prayer. You cannot just be passionate about praying for revival and not passionate about speaking the gospel. We need the Spirit's empowering presence. This is a dangerous prayer. I wonder if you're willing to pray it. God, fill us. Fill us with your spirit and give us boldness that we might count your glory more valuable than our reputation. Are you willing to pray a prayer like that? You know, I believe that if we do, if we earnestly pray like that, then I believe that God will answer. God will pour his spirit out on the people of this church. And we will see people speaking the gospel with great boldness. We will see friends and family and colleagues and co-workers and and mates come to faith in Jesus. I believe that that will happen. So many of my stories come from the stories that Brad has shared over the years of the persecuted church. And I just wanted to share in closing a couple from... uh, some other countries that are close to the gospel. I remember Brad telling a story of a Colombian rebel fighter who got saved. I believe he got saved because someone dropped a Bible and a parachute out of the sky. He picked up the Bible, he read it, he got saved, and so he left the rebel camp. And that made him a marked man. To leave the rebel army meant that if anyone from the rebel army stumbled across you, they would would kill you. And so this man fled, he left the jungles of Colombia, And he felt a call from God to take the gospel back to men who no one could ever possibly reach because they just didn't know where they were. It was impossible to get to them. It was highly dangerous. And so this man, knowing that his life is at complete risk, took the gospel and went back into the jungles of Colombia to share the gospel in the red zone with rebel fighters. The Spirit empowered him with boldness to do that. Well, I remember him sharing stories of what they called the Nigerian gumboot evangelists who 
Um, when they were asked what they needed to preach the gospel, of course they needed prayer and, and spirit-empowered boldness. They, they kind of already had that because in the face of Boku Haram, who were severely persecuting them, they were preaching the gospel anyway. But what they asked for, funnily enough, was gumboots. And they said, why do you want gumboots? They said, well, as we trudge through the jungle, there's lots of snakes, and often our evangelists get bitten and die because of the snakes, so gumboots would be really helpful. And so 13.3, Voice of the Martyrs started a campaign to fundraise money so that they could put gumboots on these evangelists. In, in the face of severe persecution, the Spirit empowered these people with great boldness to walk through the snake-infested jungles where Boku Haram was trying to kill them and preach the gospel. Or I remember the story of a young man called Stephen who was a 19-year-old Bible college professor or lecturer, I think. Maybe you, know, you, can, you can do that at 19 in Myanmar. But uh, he was sharing about his heart for his country. And he said, I am willing to die for the sake of people in my country coming to know Jesus. And he talks about how they're sending out evangelists. And he talks about how he would love the church in Australia to pray for them. Because he said, without prayer, there is no power. Across our world, there are people whose daily decision is to risk their life for the sake of the gospel. And the Spirit of God empowers them to do that. And here we are in Sydney in 2015 with relative freedom to do whatever we want. Do we doubt that God's Spirit would empower us to do the exact same thing here in our city for His glory? Let's be a church that is bold enough to pray a prayer for boldness. And maybe you just need to begin by saying, God, I'm scared to pray that prayer. Would you give me the faith to pray a prayer like that? Because I know that when I pray it, you answer, it means I've got to speak. But you know, because I know that there are people here this morning who need to hear the gospel, and that's every single one of us. What I want to do right now is to proclaim the gospel. Using the themes of Acts chapter 2 and 4, I want to share the gospel with us and minister to our hearts. God is our sovereign Lord. Sovereign Lord, this church prayed. He is the God who has created every single thing on the face of this universe, including you. He created you. He owns you. You are His. And yet we've chosen to live our lives as if God was non-existent. It is the ultimate, ultimate form of defiance towards the ultimate authority, God. Our actions have both hurt and angered God. And his response is to hand us over to judgment. And yet, in his love, in his mercy, in his grace and kindness, in his perfect plan that God had established before the foundation of the earth, he gave his one and only son, Jesus, to come and die on a cross to pay for our rejection of God, to pay for our sin, to restore us, to wash us clean, to give us a new heart, and that Jesus would gift us his righteousness and make us perfect. It is by the name of Jesus, and only by the name of Jesus, that people are saved and can come to God. Friends, that's the gospel Every single person in this room needs to hear it. Whether you need to hear that for the thousandth time and allow that truth to minister to your heart, this is my gospel identity. 
or whether you need to hear that for the first time and realize that the God who you have rejected is the God of the universe who woos you and calls you to come back to him at the cross. Friends, we're going to celebrate that gospel. We're going to remember that gospel now in response. To my right and left are two stations with a glass jar of grape juice and a small bowl of, of bread. These are symbols of what Jesus has done, his blood that was shed for us, his body that was broken. And so we invite you to come and celebrate the gospel by dipping the bread into that juice and eating it and remembering what Jesus has done. And we invite you to respond by worshiping and praising our great God. And we pray and invite the band up. We're going to respond in praise and worship now. Father God, we thank you. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you that you have crossed the universe to reach out. You, you Jesus, considered our needs above your own. Did not consider equality with the Father something to be grasped and held onto. Father, we thank you that you've lavishly loved us. And Lord God, this morning as we look around our city and see a city that finds our message increasingly unpopular, hard to the ear, we pray, Father, we wouldn't turn in on ourselves in self-sufficiency or run away from what you've called us to. But Father, we ask for boldness. We ask that you would pour your spirit out on this church, on the lives of people here, that we would boldly declare the name of Jesus, that we would regard your glory and your fame of greater worth than our reputation. Empower us by your spirit, Father, to make a difference in this city. We ask it in the strong and powerful name of Jesus. Amen.